Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never, never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the, the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is God's word. Now during Lent, we considered Jesus' teaching on prayer. We talked about fasting. We talked about how prayer affects our relationship with God, our relationships with others. We focused on what Jesus taught But tonight, we're looking at how Jesus himself prayed. We're going to look at three prayers from the cross, the three times that Jesus prayed as he was being crucified. And I think these these three prayers can help us understand what happened on the cross, how it happened, and of course, why it happened. So I'd like to walk you through these three prayers. I think we we can really get to the heart of Jesus if we look at these prayers from the cross. So here's the first one, and it comes from our text from Luke 23, and in verse 34, 
This is right after they crucified Jesus. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now this prayer tells us that the death of Christ released God's forgiveness. His death on the cross released God's forgiveness towards us. Now look at what Jesus is doing here. He's praying for his enemies to be forgiven even as they put him on the cross, they nail his hands, they nail his feet to the cross, even as they just did that, his response to that is to pray for their forgiveness. He's praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does it seem strange to you that Jesus is doing that? I mean, it certainly feels, it feels counterintuitive. It feels certainly not what I would naturally do. Probably not any of us would naturally pray for the forgiveness of those who are in the act of hurting us, in the act of putting us to death. But if it feels strange to you, if you think this is strange that Jesus is doing that, I'd like to suggest to you that maybe you are missing the reason why Jesus came. As we read these accounts, and, and, and for many of us, these accounts are so familiar. We, we know the beats of, of all these narratives. And yet, if you could put yourself in, in a fresh mindset and, and, and see what is told here and the, the shocking encounter with Jesus on the cross praying for those who are, who are putting him to death, praying for their forgiveness, we have to ask the question, is it out of character for him or is it in character? And if you look at the whole story and you look at other passages and you look at other sayings of Jesus and other prayers of Jesus, you realize that this is actually why he came. He came so that forgiveness of God's enemies would be accomplished. Now, Scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, we read that passage from Romans 5, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Now, that's an interpretation. That's a commentary of Paul the Apostle on what happened. But this is utterly consistent with what Jesus has always said. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die for his enemies. And the way Scripture describes it, we're we're all God's enemies. We're all sinners. We're all in need of forgiveness. Jesus didn't come to sacrifice himself for those who were friendly with God. He was so clear on that. He's saying that the healthy people don't need a physician. He didn't come for the healthy, at least not those who thought they were healthy. But he came for the sick. He came for the, for the enemies. He came for those who are against God, which is all of us. That's what Scripture teaches. He didn't come to sacrifice his life for those who were asking for a little help from God to get over the hump. No, he came to give his life for his enemies, for those who, when given a chance, actually put him on the cross. That's who he came for. That's what he came to do. He came to release God's forgiveness on us, on God's enemies. And at first glance, when you see this prayer, or at least for me, my first reaction to this is when he prays, 
Forgive them for they know not what they do. I feel like he's excusing their, their sin. They're ignorant. They don't know. They don't realize how badly they're sinning. So, Father, forgive them because they're not totally at fault here. They're just kind of confused. Some people take it this way. But if you think about the whole message of Scripture, and if you, if you think about how God describes our true condition, there's no excuse. God never excuses our sin. He never excuses our guilt before Him. So what I think about this passage is that this prayer actually shows us the depth of our sinfulness. I think Jesus is praying for those who are putting Him to death, and he's asking for their forgiveness, and he says they know not what they're doing because we don't realize how sinful we are. So the ignorance of the depth of our sinfulness is not an excuse. It actually is another reason why we need forgiveness because we don't even know to ask for forgiveness. Our sin has blinded us, so we make excuses for ourselves. And Jesus knows that the people who are crucifying him, just like any one of us, we, we don't realize the, the full extent of our sinfulness. But he knows that we don't deserve forgiveness because we are ignorant. Our ignorance is just another aspect of our miserable state. Not only, not only we can't, that we can't free ourselves from from sin's hold. We, we don't even know that we are under, under sin's way. And so Jesus prays, forgive them, Father, because they don't even know they need forgiveness. They don't even realize how, how deeply they are affected by their sin. They are so confused. They are so blinded by sin. They are so ignorant of their true condition that only you, God, see who they are and you know that they need forgiveness. So forgive them even if they, as they are committing this, this cosmic atrocity against Jesus himself. Now, a minute ago, I, I quoted a, a place in the Bible from Romans 5 that identified all people as sinners and all people as God's enemies. That's what Scripture teaches. It's very clear in Scripture that, that we, those who are out of, outside of Christ, those who have not been forgiven, God sees us as his enemies. We act and live as his enemies. We are rebels. We are we, we are traitors. We are those who, who are against him. With our whole lives, we're against him. That's what Scripture teaches. That is actually our true condition. But if you ask around, even in churches, but certainly outside of church, if you ask around, do you think you're God's enemy? Do you think you're a sinner who is so blinded <laughs> by, by their sin that you don't even know you're a sinner? Nobody... Uh, would readily agree with that unless, unless they've had some sort of revelation, unless the Holy Spirit has done something in their heart. Most people don't believe that. Most people, at least in my experience, and certainly my pre-Christian experience, I didn't think I was God's enemy. And that just shows you that sin blinds us. Sin blinds us to our true condition. And that's why Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because only God can see how pervasive, how extensive, and how abiding our sin really is. We can't see it. We don't know what we do. But God can see 
our true condition, and because he knows, he offers us the only cure, which comes through the death of his son. The cross of Christ, this familiar story, familiar truth to many of us, the cross of Christ is an indisputable assessment of our condition. This, the cross is actually what gets through our blindness because it, it is so shocking, really, if we consider it, it is so shocking that it happened, that it, it, it has to, it just opens our eyes. We must be shocked into believing that we really are God's enemies. Because God sent a Savior, and we killed him. We killed him. Not even realizing what we were doing. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But at the same time, the cross of Christ is an incontrovertible expression of God's mercy on us. It's a true assessment of who we are, because he sends us a Savior and we kill him. And we don't even know what we're doing. We're really sinful. But it's also an expression of his mercy. He does send a Savior whom he knows will be put to death. He does send a Savior who will pray from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even though we are sinners and God's enemies. And we don't even realize it. Jesus came to die for us and prayed from the cross for our forgiveness. That's the first prayer. The second prayer, as Jesus is dying, and this comes from Matthew 27, there's a parallel passage in, in Mark as well, but Matthew 27, 45, and 46, as Jesus is dying, from the sixth hour, which is noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So in the middle of the day, there's darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabbatani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This prayer tells us that the death of Christ was necessary for God to forgive his enemies. It was necessary. It, it released that forgiveness that the first prayer tells us the reason why Jesus came. He wants, he wants God's forgiveness to, to get into our lives and to change us. But the second prayer tells us actually how it happens, how it works. It gives us the mechanism of, of how this God can forgive his enemies. Now, Jesus' prayer is, is a direct quote from the very beginning of Psalm 22. Now, the psalm was written by King David, but... As you read it, and if you've read the story of David, if you read the Old Testament, you would conclude that the psalm does not describe any particular event in his life. Now, many psalms describe particular events in David's life, and we can actually correlate the historical uh, events with what he's praying and kind of get into his psyche a little bit and see how he's processing particular troubles in his life or victories in his life. But this one doesn't fit anywhere, and it's very specific. And what it describes is an execution of an innocent person. That's Psalm 22. It goes into great detail to describe this innocent person being unjustly condemned and put to death and everybody mocking him and God does not come to his help. That's the psalm, Psalm 22. Now, 
The only way to take it, and, and I'm being an honest reader of Scripture, as much as I can, I want to be an honest reader of Scripture. And the only way for me to honestly read Psalm 22 is to see it as a prophecy. There's nothing else in history, in the biblical history, that gives us a parallel to Psalm 22, except for what happened with Jesus. Years and years later, hundreds of years later, but when you start correlating what happened in Jesus, especially if you look at Matthew's account, but any gospel account connects the dots. And it shows you how specific that prophecy is and how closely it relates to what actually happened with Jesus on the cross. Now, Jesus quotes the first line. And so he tells us, this is what I'm thinking about. I am, this, is, this is psalm is about me. I'm experiencing what the psalm is writing about, what David prophesied. Now, let me give you some verses from this psalm and just see if you can pick up on the similarities. I mean, it actually is remarkable how specific, how accurate the depiction of, of the crucifixion is in Psalm 22. Verses 6, 7, and 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I mean, doesn't it sound familiar? We just read the passage from, uh, from Luke, and he talks about almost everybody is saying, well, if you think you're the Savior, save yourself. If you're the Christ of God, what are you doing on the cross? You talked about saving, everybody will save yourself. Everybody's mocking Jesus. Let him deliver him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Now verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Bones out of joints? That's crucifixion. That's what happened. Powerlessness, thirst, Dread of suffocation, my heart melts like wax. These are all particular features of, of the torturous death by crucifixion. And then verses 16, 17, and 18. Now this is poetic language, but, but notice how specific it is. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even though it was written hundreds of years ago, before the crucifixion, it describes what happened to Christ in, in incredible detail. The crucifixion was, was unknown. It was not a common thing at all at the time of David. And yet the psalm predicts the piercing of the hands and feet and as you may recall, Jesus' clothing was divided among the soldiers who cast lots for it. So by quoting Psalm 22, Jesus applies this prophecy to himself. He is the innocent person that is being executed on the cross. He says, I'm the one that you read about, that King David prophesied about. You can go to the psalm, you can see the meaning of what's happening right now. As he Praise the first line of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he focuses on the first line, this is important. 
because he focuses on the first line of the psalm and really makes it about God. He makes it about God's role in this, in this execution of an innocent person. He forces us to think, why is God allowing that? Why? In the psalm, you expect that God comes to the rescue. But on the cross, God doesn't. Jesus cries, cries out. He, he, he shrieks, he screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God isn't there. He isn't there to help Jesus. But Jesus is not just an innocent person suffering from human injustice. So many interpreters look at the gospel accounts and they're saying, well, this is, this is just about human injustice. It's the, the empire, it's, it's the... It's the social structures, you know, it's whatever, the systematic stuff or particular evil people that, that put Jesus to death. And of course that's true. Of course it is. Of course the empire didn't like Jesus. Of course the religious authorities didn't like Jesus. Of course what he was preaching and what he was doing was not acceptable to the system. But that's a secondary cause. The main cause, and Scripture is so clear about that, is that God was putting him to death. This wasn't just an innocent person suffering from human injustice. Not just that. This was an innocent person abandoned by the just God. The God who was supposed to come to his rescue. Now, we can even go further and say that this is an innocent person suffering from the divine justice. This is not just an execution by a human authority, by Rome or by the Jewish religious leaders, by the mob. I mean, this wasn't just that. This was God executing an innocent person. Nobody in the world has ever obeyed God perfectly. Nobody in the world has ever trusted Him. Nobody in the world has ever lived a life that was so consistent with God's kingdom. There was absolutely nothing that you can fault that person with except for Jesus, except for Jesus. This is the person who's on the cross crying out to God, and he's praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The covenant God, my God, my God, the God he knows has forsaken him, has abandoned him. You see, by quoting from Psalm 22, Jesus reveals that he knows why God has forsaken him. He's putting it in context of, of redemptive history for us. He's putting it in, in context of what God has planned to do because it was prophesied. This is not a random occurrence. This was prophesied. Jesus knows it was prophesied. He knows he came to release the forgiveness of God towards his enemies. And he knows it goes through the cross. That's why he prays the words of Scripture. He prays God's very words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows why he's suffering. He's being put to death in place of his enemies. Now, if he's innocent, and if God is justly punishing him, and both facts are really inarguable, God is just and Jesus is innocent, the only explanation is that he's dying for someone else. He's taken someone else's place. He's there on the cross in someone else's Stead. Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 
5.21, if you want to understand the gospel, the essence of the Christian faith, the essence of what Christians proclaim every Sunday and what we think completely recenters our lives, if you want to understand what that message is, this is a good verse to go to. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So God made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus did not know sin. God, the just God, made Jesus the innocent to be sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is as clear as it can be. God makes the innocent Jesus sin and pours out his wrath. And at the same time, we who deserve God's wrath, who are actually sinful, we're not innocent, who are actually God's enemies, receive his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. We receive something from Jesus that makes us acceptable to God, and we are no longer his enemies, but we are his friends. Accepted into his home, accepted into his kingdom, into his family, with all the benefits of those who actually belong with God. The key idea is substitution. That's the key, that's the whole thing, substitution. God did something for us in Christ. He put Christ in our place so that what's supposed to happen to us actually would happen to him. And so that what is supposed to happen to him would actually happen to us because he deserved for God to be there and to help him, and to never forsake him. But because he was in our place, God forsook him. So that whenever I need God now, if I am in Christ, God will never, can never forsake me, because I have Christ's righteousness. And all that's supposed to happen to Christ is going to happen to each one of us who are in Christ. Now let me put it this way. Jesus loved and obeyed God, and yet he lost his presence and help on the cross. Now why? So that we who rejected and disobeyed God can have his presence and help forever. That is how the cross of Christ secures our forgiveness. And if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, and, and you're not quite sure how this works, can I encourage you, can I, can I implore you to really understand this? Spend some time. Talk to somebody. If you're a young believer, talk to somebody who maybe has walked with Christ a little longer than you and can explain this. Search the scriptures. Go to these passages that I've mentioned. Go to other passages. But understand the idea of substitution because everything hangs on that. If that's not true, I think Christianity is just a wish. It's just a hope, maybe. But if it is true, everything is different. Everything is different. And finally, the last prayer. The third prayer, Luke 23, 46. And this is Jesus praying as he is dying. Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last and this prayer tells us that the death of Christ was, in fact, God's will. 
the cross was not an accident. It was not a tragedy that could have been or should have been avoided. The cross perfectly fulfilled God's will. Now we read in, in Isaiah 53, it was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to crush him. Jesus himself said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And then he says, this charge I have received from my father. This charge I have received from my father. The father commanded Jesus and Jesus graciously and joyfully agreed that he would lay down his life for us. God's will. This is the Trinitarian will of God. This was supposed to happen and it did happen. It's God's will from the beginning and Jesus fulfilled God's will perfectly. If the cross was God's will, if what happened on the cross with Jesus is, is actually meaningful and right, if it actually matters, if this is what God wanted to do and he did it, if the cross is God's will, it also means that it is God's will to save you. That God wants to save you. If he goes to the length of sending his son to die on the cross for us, and he wanted to do that, and he decided to do that, and he devised a plan, and there was a Trinitarian agreement, and it was accomplished, it can only mean that God really wants to save you. God really wants to forgive you. God really wants to reconcile with you. Though you are his enemy, he wants you to be his friend. And so he's reaching toward you. Somebody said, G.K. Chesterton said, that the cross is like a, like a sign at the crossroads. It's like a road sign that points in different directions. And so the question is, which direction are you going? Everybody has to deal with the cross. Once you hear about it, you have to deal with it. So which way are you going to go? Are you going to embrace its meaning? Are you going to see that it really does release forgiveness towards God's enemies, sinners, though we don't even know the depth of our sin, but it releases that forgiveness to us freely by grace. God, God sent Jesus to do that. And that it happens through the substitution, through the sacrifice of Christ, that he died for us so we can live in him. Are you going to embrace these truths and live completely differently because of that? Or are you going to reject it and go the other direction? If, if you've come to the crossroads, which way are you going? Are you going towards God through Christ? Or are you going away from God, rejecting what Christ has done? So I'll just end on that. Are you saved? Are you saved? It's kind of an old school question, right? We don't use that terminology much anymore, but you need to be saved because you're lost and you don't even know it. But now you do. Through the cross, God tells you what your true condition is and you are lost and you are condemned. You're God's enemy but he loves you. And so he's extending his forgiveness to you through the cross. And imagine what it cost him to do that. So don't cheapen it by not paying attention. 
Don't cheapen it by ignoring that. Wrestle with it. Deal with it. And my prayer is that you embrace that forgiveness by faith. You accept it in gratitude and in joy. I'm going to end with a prayer, and I'm going to use one of the older prayers, uh, one of the Puritan prayers that speaks of the cross of Christ. And I'll pray it slowly, and I, you know, pray with me, but also meditate on these words. There are many allusions to Scripture in this prayer. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that this becomes your prayer. This becomes maybe the first prayer. So respond to Christ's prayers from the cross with your prayer of repentance and faith and embrace of, of Christ and his accomplishment for you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord Jesus, before your cross, I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused you to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Your blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? The air supply breath, the earth bear my tread, its fruits nourish me, its creatures subserve my ends. Yet your compassions yearn over me. Your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in your blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Lord, I pray that this, this prayer of acknowledging our great sinfulness and yet rejoicing in your great salvation through the cross of Christ will become our prayer now for some of us for the first time, and for those of us who've walked with you for many years, this will become a new song for us, a new refrain. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior.